0: The rare disease community is inspirational, brave, and empowering. Welcome to Insightful Moments, My Vibe, from PTC Therapeutics.
1: Hello everyone, and welcome back to PTC's Insightful Moments, My Vibe, where we're elevating the voices of people within the rare disease community to inspire, inform, and comfort. My name is Emily Hines, and I'm the Global Clinical Patient Engagement Liaison at PTC Therapeutics. Recently, we attended the Global Genes Rare Advocacy Summit in San Diego, where Paula oren spoke to many people who are connected to the rare disease community, whether as parents, caregivers, or as patients themselves. Today, our focus is on three mothers of children with diagnosed rare diseases. We'll give these guests a platform to share their stories about the challenges of being a caregiver, the diagnostic journeys they experienced, how they advocate for their children, and so much more. We'll start with Shelly, whose son, Nico, started having nearly daily seizures at six months old due to a genetic disorder called SCN8A-related epilepsy. Shelly tells us about Nico's condition, his diagnosis journey, what it's like for her son to live with a rare disease, and how he's still as full of joy as ever.
2: Thank you so much for being part of PTC's Insightful Moments Wi-Fi, and we so appreciate you coming here today. We'd love for you to introduce yourself and tell us a little bit about your family and yourself.
3: First, thank you for inviting me to come. I truly love sharing my story and hope that in sharing with true honesty about our journey, that it only inspires others and helps to kind of help other families. My name is Shelley Frappier, and I am the mom to three beautiful kids. And I am not married now, but at the time when I was married, when my husband and I started to plan our family, we always planned it that I would be stay-at-home mom, and that was my only goal, to be a mom. I had two beautiful, very healthy children, one right after the other, and then came Nico, our third. He was born perfectly. Very typical birth, unremarkable, I guess they would call it, very unremarkable. But at six months of age, he had a seizure. One seizure turned into 10 that same day, which turned into probably, if I was to actually go back on the calendar and count, about 1,000 in that first, you know, after he turned six months till we got a real diagnosis 10 months later, he probably had about 1,000. 1,000 times he stopped breathing, 1,000 times... Just your heart stops and wonders what the heck is going on with my perfect little baby.
2: You just mentioned 10-month diagnostic journey. Can you give us a little understanding of that?
3: Yeah, 10 months seems remarkably fast. So what I'm hearing is that we got really lucky. But when you have a little baby, it felt like forever of why is he having seizures? Because he had an MRI. His brain was perfect. He was developing perfectly. And he had a... EEGs that showed that he was having seizures. We had PET scans, which is, you know, they come out with this radioactive tray and they do dyes and layers upon layers of scans and everything was fine. He had a MEG scan and that show was a, an EEG and an MRI layered on top and everything was okay. Still showed seizure activity, but there were no lesions or any other causes. And after everything was ruled out that we had no cause, the doctors finally said, well, maybe we should do a genetic test. You know, this was back in 2014, so not that long ago, but felt at the time. Now they do it a lot faster, but we ended up with a diagnosis. Nico was almost a year and a half, and he had a rare genetic epilepsy called SCN8A. He had a mutation of his SCN8A gene.
2: Fast forward to today, can you tell us how things are going with him today?
3: Yeah, so we're really lucky. Having that genetic test for us, first of all, linked me to other families. And when I say other families, there were 50 in the world. Back in 2015, there were about 50 other families worldwide, most of them in the U.S. And only about two were being treated well, which meant seizure-free or lessened amount of seizures. And learning from these families and this one doctor in particular gave us a treatment protocol that should work for someone like Nico with the 8A diagnosis. And we got very lucky and it did work. Nico now, after his first two and a half years, he lived with seizures almost daily. He has not had a seizure in seven years. So we are, you know, knock on wood, because he will have another seizure because it's a syndrome and a gene diagnosis. So we found the right medication that worked for his diagnosis, and we got really lucky. But even just having a diagnosis of SCN8A, while well, we got lucky, not a, many families with an 8A diagnosis are as lucky as we are, and they're living with profound effects of epilepsy.
2: In the whole sphere of epilepsy, can you give the listeners, like, kind of an understanding of what what ha-
3: profound means yeah. and what happens? So having a diagnosis of SCN-8A epilepsy, half of our children live with feeding tubes. They either can't swallow by mouth or in a child like Nico won't eat or have a diet that needs to be fed by tube because they don't want to eat. But they live with mild movement disorders to severe. They live with seizures. And when I say seizures, I don't mean just one seizure type. I mean every seizure type there is. Nico in particular had every seizure, every seizure type. Children with STN8A have more comorbidities than other genetic epilepsies, which means more systems are involved, breathing issues, heart issues, GI issues, movement issues. It's such a spectrum that you could be on the top like Nico and not have seizures right now and be he attends school regularly like a typical child with mild cognitive deficits, or we have other children that are non ambulatory and um, wheelchair and bed bound and with trach tubes. And it's quite profound.
2: Such a large spectrum for sure. Can you tell us about Nico? Tell me what he's like and what he enjoys doing.
3: On a good day. So I laugh and say, on a good day, Nico is the happiest child. I have ever met and I've worked with thousands of children. He is the happiest child I have ever met in my entire life. Nothing throws him off. He wakes up talking, falls asleep talking in French and English. We have a bilingual household and he does not stop. He is in the second percentile for height and weight, which means he's really tiny. So he has these tiny little legs, tiny little body, And he's tiny one because he has a very selective diet, but also the child does not stop moving. And when I say moving, we'll be playing a board game and he's jumping up and down with excitement, talking to his friends. He's jumping up and down with excitement, eating a meal. He's jumping up and down with excitement. He is just happy and brings a smile and joy into the classroom, into the family room, into the park, wherever he is. He just exudes joy on the downside. There's no down from that. So he's speaking all through class. He's participating with a very loud voice. He only has loud. There's no medium or quiet. He parrots his teacher. So if he's bored in class, he will repeat every single thing she says, whether it's his French teacher or an English teacher. He's very affectionate and loves his people. And when I mean love It's aggressive love with a lot of touching and a lot of being close. So his EA, his mom, his special people, he has hands on all the time, which is pretty cute because he's still so small and only he's not quite 10. When he gets older, that's not going to be so cute. But he loves riding his bike. He loves swimming. He loves playing and just being like a regular 10-year-old. He's pretty cool. He sounds it.
2: (laughs) With siblings, you know, we always say how amazing siblings are. Can you give me an understanding of...
3: His siblings are 13 and and almost 12 right now. And so they're in a difficult part of their life. And also to bring perspective, my husband and I just separated this year. So we're also going through a big change. The kids and I moved out in May. So we're, we're going through a lot of big family changes right now. So... When I'm home, when Nico's home, he's with me all the time. So the other two children, despite them being 13 and 12, they do want to hang out with their mom, and they don't really get to. So when my daughter says, I want to go see the Barbie movie, I have had to say no for the last few weeks because I don't have child care for Nico. They are bored of playing the same game. Nico only wants to play Mario Party on the Switch, or he only wants to play Monopoly Junior. They don't want to play that anymore because we've played it every day for the last three years. But on the other hand, my daughter, who is almost 12, just got her first date in CPR. So she, I actually feel safe leaving Nico with her and she looks after him at times, which is really quite lovely. So they are really caring and protective of him.
2: You, a mom now, it's a single mom, right? Taking care of three children. How does that look for you? And, And what do you do for yourself?
3: That is a whole podcast on its own. I have come through an incredible journey Of bottom mental health care, going through crisis and PTSD and living with Nico in crisis. About five years ago, I was the woman in the closet with the door shut on the floor crying and wanting to just abandon parenthood altogether. Fast forward five years, medication, therapy, tea, timeouts, um, having a job that I love with a foundation that supports other families like me. So it's a lot of self care all the time. My job right now is really heavy. I am the director of patient support for the Acute Syndrome Foundation, which supports families with SCNA day epilepsy. So I'm supporting other moms, but I'm also giving grief recovery to bereaved moms and moms and family members that are going through grief. So yeah, life is heavy and it's a big lift, but I have finally given myself the okay to, you know, even at the end of this conference, I'm staying for two days and I'm driving up to Carlsbad to the beach and I have a, you know, I'm staying alone and just literally going to sit on the beach for two days by myself and just stare at the sun and the water. So I've given myself the okay to do those things. So those are big. That's a big thing, but it went from starting with medication and giving myself a 10 minute tea timeout to now I can finally take that beach vacation on my own and Relax.
2: How brave that is, right? But what a blessing it will be for you to have those two days, right? I don't think people understand how precious those two days will be for you.
3: Yeah. And it's you get a lot of kickback from other women and moms, which they're the ones that you really wish didn't kind of judge you for taking time off. But taking that, whether it's a 10-minute tea break or looking at the trees for five minutes out the window or taking those two days at the beach— Really allows me to fill. My bucket is full so I can dump my bucket out on the next woman that needs all of my love and ears when they need help. And to have the energy to run after Nico, which is, he's my bucket emptier at home.
2: I'm sure he helps with you getting your steps in.
3: <laughs> yes. Yes. Tell me a little
2: bit more about the CUTE Foundation, how that works, and if people wanted to reach out, how would they do that?
3: They can find us everywhere now, which is really cool. Um, It used to just be a family support group on Facebook, but that is our most active community. So you can find us on Facebook, the CUTE Syndrome Foundation, or on our website, or through Twitter, or through Instagram. LinkedIn is the last one, and it's the CUTE Syndrome. Every email will probably come to me, and I will... Definitely. I am the person that onboards every new patient. So I will be your first point of contact and just send me an email. I love that. Is there anything that I didn't ask that you would like to share? For us, you know, it's that one moment at a time. It's, you know, we call them like inch stones, not milestones. Like whether, you know, if it's self-care, just take the 10 minutes to have a tea or close the bathroom door and watch the 10 minutes of TikTok that you have. Or if your child is so far behind and you don't know what to do, like know that it's just an inch they have to move. They don't have to meet the milestone. Like, let's just do little tiny bits and pieces because the whole puzzle will come together, but just a tiny little bit at a time. Thank you so much.
2: That is such a beautiful story. Thank you. Appreciate you taking the time to come. No,
3: thank you. I love sharing and I only hope that whether it's inspiring somebody to look out the window and smile and to get through the next 10 minutes or take the beach vacation or know that everything's going to be okay. And if it's not okay to call a friend.
1: Next, we spoke with Kelly, the mother of eight-year-old twins, Bryce and James, who have spinal muscular atrophy or SMA. Kelly tells us of the boy's initial symptoms, their diagnostic journey, and how she is working on empowering her sons and finding herself again. I'd like to thank you, first of all, for joining us at PTC's
2: Insightful Moment My Bye, and thank you so much for coming. Yeah, thanks for having me. So
0: please introduce yourself and tell us about your family. Sure. So my name is Kelly Agin. I am mom to Bryce and James. So they are twins who are almost eight years old. They have spinal muscular atrophy, also known as SMA for short. I also have a four-year-old who's unaffected, and we live in Maryland. So let's talk a little bit about spinal muscular atrophy, and how would you explain that diagnosis? Sure. So the best way I can describe it is it's often compared to ALS in children. So it's a neuromuscular disease where over time, the body gets weaker and weaker. So you start out as typically developing at birth, and then there's just kind of a natural decline. And then for us, if I can share a little bit about like how how we kind of came into this world and, and how it happened, the boys were born at almost 37 weeks. So they were just early enough that they were given that like premature label, but not early enough that like we spent a ton of time in the NICU. They spent about two weeks in the NICU, but it was for like feeding difficulties and breathing difficulties, but it was all like shelved under that early birth. We took them home. We were told they're great. Nothing's wrong. So it was around three months that I started noticing that the boys weren't picking their heads up for tummy time. And like they would just kind of lay on their bellies and they would just kind of turn their heads from side to side. But it was like the slide, like they never cleared their faces off the mats. And at their four-month appointment, I brought it up to our pediatrician at the time. And I remember putting Bryce on his belly. And I said, this is all he does on tummy time. He doesn't try. He doesn't pick his head up. He's not. They're not doing anything here at tummy time. And the doctor, like, barely looked at him and was like, he was early. He's a twin. He'll catch up. And he walked out of the room. And I just, like, couldn't settle in that. Like, I was just like, no, there's something more here. Like, I had a friend— her little boy was born a week before the boys. And and I could see, like, I gave them that month of catch-up because they were almost a month early. And I could see, like, okay, now they're starting to smile at me. And now they're starting to do these things But then all of a sudden, I noticed that gap getting bigger and bigger where she was putting her little guy in one of those bouncers, like the extra saucer bouncers. And like the boys, I was like, they can't. Like, I can't do that with them. So I called like our local early intervention and had them come out. Like, I just bypassed the pediatrician because I was like, there's something more here. I didn't necessarily realize how serious it was, but I knew there was something more going on. And early intervention came out. And I remember they were like, oh, yeah, they qualify. They're, they're missing milestones. We had like our big meeting. And I always say in my previous light, I was a teacher. I was a special education teacher. So I wrote the IEPs. I sat at the table with these families and kind of having that role reversal of being the parent on the other side of that table. Like I always say, like, I want to call all the parents that I ever sat at a table with and apologize because I'm sure that Like, I didn't look at it from a parent's eyes. Like, I looked at it from the teacher's eyes. And so we sat at this meeting, and they had set a goal for the boys in a year to be able to sit independently. And at that point, they were almost six months old. And I was like, wait, in a year, we want them to sit independently. That'll put these boys at 18 months. We should be doing way more than sitting independently. And I remember having that unsettled feeling of like, is this more than just their twins and they were early? But Also, nobody was really saying to, like, go do more testing. Go find out more answers. They were just like, okay, this is what we'll do. At their six-month appointment, we went in and we saw a regular pediatrician. The the person we had seen at the four-month was kind of like a fill-in. And she walked out of the room. Or she said, she's like, give me one minute. I'll be right back. And she walked out of the room. And I was honestly pretty cocky. Like, I was sitting there like, you told me not to worry. And I did. And I got early intervention. I'm doing everything these boys need to do. I know they're missing milestones and I know they're not as strong as they should be for six months, but I'm doing it. Like, I got it. I don't need you. <laughs> and she walked back in the room and she said, I'm really concerned with the boys' development. And I was like, well, yeah, that's what I told you. And she goes, no, no, I, I really think we need to see if there's not something more going on here. So that's when she sent us, she was like, here's a couple neurologists in the area. Call them. See if you can get an appointment. She's like, but if you can't get an appointment within a week or two, call me back. Cause she's like, I don't want you worrying about this. Now I know that you wait months and months and months for a neurologist appointment unless something's really wrong. So I went home, I called, I couldn't get into any neurologist for months because that's how they work. And I called the office back and I said, hey, like, you know, they want us to wait three months. Is that okay? And she was like, well, let me make some calls and see what I can find out. So she called back and she had us an appointment. It was like a Tuesday and she had us an appointment for Thursday. And again, like, now I'm like, oh, you don't just get into a neurologist that quickly. She also knew it was SMA, but she couldn't tell us that. Like, that's not her job to do it. So she was pretty confident that it was SMA. She had had a couple kids with SMA in the past. So it was, like, on her mind. Like, we got really lucky at that appointment that we saw her again, because I don't know that they still would have been diagnosed. We went that week to Thursday to the neurologist and— Even at the time, like, you know, I had spent so many nights Googling and researching and and coming across all these different diagnoses of like, this doesn't quite fit, this doesn't quite fit. But like, I knew there was something else. Like, I knew it had to be more than just this early birth window of a month. Like, they weren't early enough that we should have been missing milestones like this. But I couldn't, I couldn't find anything because, you know, SMA is so rare. And the doctor was kind of asking me like question after question about their development. And, you know, and it's really hard because people would ask me things about how they moved in utero. And I'm like, well, I don't, I don't know. They're my first babies. Like I've never had babies move before. So I don't know if this is typical or not typical. And the one question she asked me that like still sticks with me till this day is she asked me if they were reaching for my face. And I remember thinking like, what an odd question to ask. And then I thought, are they reaching for my face? And I like couldn't think. I was like, I don't even know. And then, you know, like I felt like a really crappy mom that I don't even notice that they are or they aren't. And I had long dangly earrings because I love long dangly earrings. And she said, well, are your earrings still safe? Meaning, are they grabbing on my earrings? Have I gotten to the point where I'm not wearing long earrings? And my heart sunk. Because I was still wearing these long earrings. I knew that they weren't reaching for my face. And I said, I was like, no, they're they're not. And she's like, okay. She like checks another thing on her form. And at the end of the meeting, she hands me a pack of tissues and she goes, My allergies always bother me this time of year too. And I remember thinking, like, have I even like sniffled? You know, like I was like, Am I sniffling? Do I sound? You know, like I, I like question myself and hindsight, it was because she was preparing me. She was preparing me that I was going to cry and that I was going to be upset. And she asked me, she's like, what do you think it is? And I went through the list. I was like, CP and developmental milestones. And she was like, no, 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 no. I think she was trying to see if I knew anything about SMA. Because again, this whole time, I thought, whatever it is, it's fine. We'll do it. We'll power through it. We'll make the best of it. And this will be our life. And who cares, you know? And that's when she told me that she was pretty confident that it was spinal muscular atrophy. And she thought that the boys were likely type ones, which is the most severe type, which meaning they never sat independently. But again, I was still like, okay, now what? You know, like, now what do we do? How do we fix it? How do we move on? And that's when she, like, shattered our world. She told us that most kids only live to be two. And if they do live to be two, they likely lose all movement in their entire bodies, except for maybe their fingers and their toes. They would have to lay completely flat. They would likely have a trach. And those were all things if we were lucky, if they lived to be two. And then she told us there was no treatment. And that was where it never crossed my mind that whatever was wrong with the boys, that I would be threatened with the chance of losing both of them. So that was really like a like our whole world just like crashed down in minutes. But then like on our way out the door, she was like, there is a really promising clinical trial that's running and I really think you should look into it. So that's when we kind of just like went full force into this like, okay, if this is our life and this is what we're doing, then we've got to give these boys every chance that we can.
2: So. The next step from that would be then looking into the clinical trial? Yeah,
0: Yeah. and that's where I feel like life just like fast forward quickly because at the time there was no approved treatments. Now we have three different approved treatments, but at the time there were no approved treatments and there was only this clinical trial. We knew that it was our only chance at the boys making any kind of progress. So fortunately, the boys did enroll. They met the criteria and they were both actually part of the drug group too. So they did both receive the drug. And we started noticing the boys like making gains instead of losing abilities. So, yeah, the boys were part of the trial for about six years until the trial just ended because it was approved. We've since switched drugs to. Oral drug because it's every day and it just makes life a little bit easier. But yeah, so the boys are making progress. They are still very much affected by SMA. They have a G tube. They're not able to swallow, so they have a suction machine that we pull out like all the secretions. Or you know, if they do like taste of foods, we'll just suction it out to keep them safe. And they have a cough assist. They have the vest to shake all the junk up when they're sick. They use a pulse ox. They both use wheelchairs, so they use power wheelchairs. So we just made the switch to power wheelchairs so that they could. Keep up with their friends and keep up with the neighborhood kids. So they're doing well. But, you know, like when you look at what a type 1 diagnosis looks like, the boys are doing tremendous and incredible and making these huge gains. But their bodies are still very much affected by SMA.
2: Tell us, like, their personalities, right? So, like, tell us a little
0: bit more about them, their
2: interests, what they like to do.
0: I always joke that James is my people pleaser, and he'll do anything for anybody because you asked him. You know, like, we go to therapy, and the therapists are like, okay, James, we're going to try X, Y, and Z today. And he's nervous about it, but he's like, I'll try it. Where, you know, Bryce is more like, I don't care who I make happy. I'm going to do exactly what I want to do, (laughs) which is good. I'm glad he has that personality. You know, because the therapist would be like, we're going to try this. We're going to do this. He's like, nope, absolutely not we are not going to do that. That does not make me safe. So they're both very much into Legos and Pokemon. They're very typical eight-year-old kids. They love video games. They love to read. They love to like just have fun and be kids.
2: I often think that people don't realize that when a child gets a motorized wheelchair, that's like a child learning how to walk, right? Like off they go. Like that's complete independence and your world changes, right? Yeah, exactly. So can you give us like a little flavor of
0: that, especially with two? Yeah, you know, it's funny, like around the perimeter of our house, like about six inches up where the wheels are, you can just see this dig line the whole way around the walls from like where they just, you know, cut it too close. But, you know, it's great because it's like they get to go wherever they want to go and they get to do what they want to do. And, you know, they can go in and out of the house by themselves and they can get up and down hills by themselves. Like they don't count on us. They count on us for so much, that they need, but this is one area of their life where if they want to go up the driveway, they get to go up the driveway and it's not them waiting at the bottom of the hill for us to push them up there because they don't have the physical strength to do it. And little sister who is four, she catches a ride, nine chances out of 10 on the chairs. So she sits on the footplate and she comes over and she just like pushes their feet aside and just like makes her like wiggly butt way in there. And so, yeah, I had to like, I got the opportunity to stop pushing a stroller very young for her because I was like, get on your brother's chairs. (laughs) And they fight over who has to take her. So, but I'm like, nope, it's your job. Everybody has a job in this house. (laughs) I
2: love the sibling stories. Yeah. And so, well, she's four, but I mean, I I
0: imagine she's really so much wiser beyond her her peers. She is. You know, it's funny because I feel like she is so much wiser and can be really kind, but she's still four at the end of the day. But she's also taught me some great lessons to like have grace for other kids because she lives it and she is with us every single day. And sometimes when we go to the playgrounds or we go— out in the community and kids say stuff to the boys. And nine chances out of 10, it's never malicious. It's just kids being kids and kids being curious. But it's hard for me as a mom to not get mad and to not be defensive and, like, want to grab the parent and be like, be a better parent, <laughs> you yeah. know? Because Eliza, who is our four-year-old, she yells at them, she fights with them, she loves them, she hugs them. To her, like, it's just their brothers and it's it's no big deal. And, you know, they drop stuff, she picks it up for them and she still fights with them, but she's still kind.
2: But <laughs> well, they're siblings. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> and yeah. that's exactly yeah. right, how a sibling yeah. right But I imagine she'll grow up to be probably the most compassionate yeah. young lady.
0: Yeah, right? exactly. That's my hope. <laughs> yeah.
2: I want to go back a little bit because I was inspired by your intuition and like your gut. So if you're a newly or, or a mom looking for that new diagnosis and that gut, like what gave you the fortitude,
0: the tenacity to kind of push forward? And Yeah, I know. It's funny because I always joke with my sister that like I want to be wrong. Like one of these times I want to be wrong. And she always jokes, she's like, you have a stronger mother's intuition than anybody I've ever, ever met. Because even there's been a few times where we've had some broken bones for the boys because their bones are brittle. And I've said like, okay, we've got to get to the emergency room because this bone is broken. And my husband would be like, no, it's not. There's no way. And I'm like, yes, it is. I promise you this femur is broken. We've got to come up with a plan. And usually I'm right. And that's what I like joke. I'm like, I so desperately want to be wrong (laughs) with these big things. But with especially their diagnosis, it was just this like unsettled of like, everything I was looking up and everything I was researching, they just didn't fit. Nothing felt like this easy, like, okay, this is it. And it wasn't until that neurologist gave us the topic of SMA and I went home and I looked it up and it was just like, check, 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 check. And my husband kind of spent that week in denial while we were waiting for the genetic testing to come back. And I just knew, I was like, this is it. Like I've spent so many nights Researching and trying to figure out what was going on with the boys and why they were missing these milestones. And nothing fit until I heard of SMA. And it was just everything about the diagnosis fit them to a T. And I think just knowing that, like, until you're like settled with whatever it is, keep searching, keep looking, and keep finding. Because for me, it's always been. Like I go a lot on feelings and if it doesn't feel right, then it's not right and just keep digging until it feels right. I originally
2: feel like, oh, there's no treatments, mm-hmm. no, you know, so you kind of started yeah. with that initial diagnosis and that in your mind, right? Mm-hmm. To today. Yeah. It's so different. Yeah. The approved
0: therapies. Yeah. Can you describe like that process? Yeah. You know, it's funny because it's like you hate to be ungrateful, but it's almost harder because when it was just one treatment, you had no other choice. And it was like, this is what you did because the alternative is likely death or no physical movement whatsoever. So it was easy. It was very cut and dry. And it was like, this is the option that we went with. And now as more treatments are coming out and there's other new trials that are coming out. We're having to like really weigh these decisions. Even when we made the decision to go to the daily drug, we really had to look at the pros and cons and the side effects of both of those drugs. And it's not as simple as being like, do I want to take Tylenol or Advil for this headache? It can really... Really change what the future looks like. And if they don't respond to one of these drugs and they start to regress, will we get that strength back? And so it's a great blessing to have treatments. Like I'm sympathetic to all the rare diseases that don't have any treatments, but at the same time, it's got its own heart and it's hard about deciding which treatment to go. And like now they're part of those conversations. And, you know, they're only eight. So it's like their opinion matters, but we're still mom and dad and we're still going to try to, you know, <laughs> encourage them a certain way. But I know as they get older they're going to have a lot more to say about these and and what they want to do. But yeah, so it's been an interesting journey to have several approved treatments.
2: And you're so empowering them, aren't yeah.
0: you? Like yeah. so
2: their outlook comes sure cuz they you know to their knowledge of what they have mm-hmm. and
0: empowering them to say that you have decisions that have Yeah. And that's with the boys, like we've always taken the approach of we don't know what the ceiling is for you. Like we don't know where your physical strength stops, but we are going to do everything to make sure that we don't halt it. So whatever that looks like, you know, we're going to do intensive therapy and we're going to do the scoliosis surgery and we're going to do the hip surgery because... We don't know where your body stops physically being as strong as it is. So we just want to make sure that we give them all the tools and set their bodies up for success. And that's kind of how we approach everything. Like if they're doing something and it's hard and it's like, well, you try it first. You know, like if they're trying to get the cap off a marker, we're like, hey, you try it and then I'll come help you. Because we do want them to be as independent as possible. And we want to encourage them to keep trying and not just settle for the way things are.
2: You are a mama, three, mm-hmm. a wife. So just tell me about Kelly <laughs> who's she yeah Where does she I, I, exist? Want to know, I want to know what um a big thing of
0: caregivers right yeah a,
2: a busy life
0: yeah for sure yeah. so what about you what do you do for you I know that's hard I feel like the first four years actually probably five years of being an SMA mom you really like I lost myself for a long time I always knew that I wanted to stay home with kids when I had them but all of a sudden I was now forced that I couldn't ever go back. Because it's like, if I went back, we had to make sure that we had full-time nursing, and we had several nurses to come in. Like, I can't just send the boys to daycare. I can't just get a babysitter for the boys on a Saturday night so my husband and I can go out to dinner. And so I feel like for those first— several, several years, I was just kind of fully engulfed in it and doing that and being their mom that I kind of lost who I was and lost how to care for myself. And then as the boys kind of got a little bit more independent and a little bit stronger, my husband and I started like being like, okay, how do we, how do we take care of ourselves again? How do we take care of our marriage again? How do we like just this is our life. So we've got to figure out how to do it really well. And so that's where like we've, my husband, and I will kind of sit down and be like, okay, I, I need this, you know, like on the weekends, we'll say, what do you need this weekend to be better here? And maybe it's just going for a run for him. Or for me, it's going downstairs in the basement and doing a workout or like meeting friends for lunch. And we try to really be intentional about getting some time to ourselves to do the things that we enjoy again. And this conference is one of them. Like, he's manning the fort at home while also working. And I just keep calling and saying, you good? You got it? <laughs> but we're both just eager for the other one to, like, get a chance to take care of themselves and come back a better parent that we're willing to make those sacrifices. And as far as, like, my spare time, I, I also help with a foundation called the Fighting for Caden Foundation. It is to benefit individuals with SMA. So we kind of step in where insurance doesn't. So if you need a suction machine or a pulse ox or a wheelchair or anything like that, if we have the funds, we'll make sure to fill it. And, you know, initially they funded the boys' first manual wheelchairs. So there's a, a lightweight wheelchair that insurance doesn't cover because there's not very many modifications you can make on it. And those wheelchairs run like four to $5,000 a piece. And then when you have two kids with disabilities, so having a child with a disability is really expensive. Having two kids with a disability is astronomically expensive. And to be able to spend $8,000 on two wheelchairs just wasn't in our budget to do. And the Fighting for Caden Foundation's stepped in and said, hey, we've got the funds and we want to do this for your family. And, and they did. And then it was shortly after that, that, they were like, hey, do you want to come help our cause? And I got to see firsthand what a huge impact this was on my family. So I was excited to jump on board and and to do that. So yeah. What a great resource. So yeah. how does someone find? Yeah. So it's just fightingforcaden.org. So the foundation was founded by Caden's grandparents. We actually, unfortunately, lost Caden last November. So as we've kind of picked up the pieces and, and tried to figure out how to move forward, it's been a hard transition. But we also know, you know, Caden's tagline was that he always wanted to help his friends. He was eight. So he's just a little bit older than the boys. So that's kind of our mission is to just like keep helping his friends and, and keep moving forward. So if you go to our website, there's a spot there that says need help and you can fill out a form and it'll kick it actually to me. So then I get the request or you can send an email to info at fightingforcaden.org And those are all good ways to find us and and see what we can do to help. Perfect. Thank you for sharing yeah. that.
2: I can't thank you enough for sharing your family story and and your story as well. So thank you so much for being here. Yeah, thanks for the opportunity. I'm always excited
1: to share. Good. Thank you. Thank you. Finally, we're going to hear from Daphne, whose two-year-old daughter, Harlow, was recently diagnosed with TUB-4A-related leukodystrophy, a condition that affects motor function, We will hear Daphne share about her fierce advocacy for her daughter and how she is determined to help her. Well, welcome to PTC's
2: Insightful Moments, my vibe. We're so grateful that you came to speak with us. Thank you so
4: much for having me. I would love for you to introduce yourself and tell us a little bit about you and your family. Well, I'm Daphne Grasswitz Prado. I am mom to three kids, Henry, who's four, Harlow, who's two, and Hope, who is eight months now. And I'm here advocating for my child, Harlow. She was just diagnosed July 28th with TUB-4A leukodystrophy. There's less than 200 kids worldwide with this particular disorder. And then for her particular variant, we found six kids total, and she is the only female. So I've been able to connect with four moms with this particular variant, but she is vibrant and fierce and bright and loves pink and sparkles and can count to 65 at two and you get a diagnosis like this and you're in a fight against time. So here I am because if anybody's going to save her, it's going to be me because this is a terminal diagnosis.
2: For people who don't know what leukodystrophy is, how do you
0: explain it?
4: The way I explain it is it it affects the myelin within the brain. So, you know, you hear about white matter diseases. So essentially, it's a hypomyelating leukodystrophy. Six is also another name for it. So it focuses on cerebellum and the basal ganglia, which is mostly motor function. So leukodystrophy will slowly take her ability to walk, talk, eat, move in in every, you know, meaningful way, but it won't take her intellectually. So it it, it creates a prison. Their body becomes a prison. And so that's usually how I explain it because when you say that your kid has a, a disease like this, I don't think people generally outside of the rare community understand the impact and what you're facing. And so that's how I would describe it. Can you talk to us a little bit about the diagnostic journey? So I think that my story is pretty typical for the rare community where I noticed that she was falling behind with walking and balance. And I started being blown off by the medical community at one-year-old because she was cruising. So she went into the doctor's office and she's effervescent and, you know, cruising around on the furniture. And, you know, I'm telling them that there's an issue and they're labeling me, you know, essentially um, a over- paranoid mother, anxious mother, to the point where, you know, at one point they asked me if I had postpartum anxiety, which, you know, might have PTSD after the diagnosis process, but um they, they kept blowing me off. So when we hit the 18-month appointment, I finally had a high-speed come apart on the doctor, and I said, You're spending 15 minutes with her. I work from home. I spend every minute of every day with her. I've got my master's degree. I'm I'm bright. I need intervention. I need early intervention. And I need to get her looked at. And so at that point, they sent me to have somebody check her hips, right? And I didn't think that was it. And they said, oh, you know, she'll be walking in six months. Don't worry about it. Come back when she hits two years if she's not walking. But we don't think we'll see you. Uh, I didn't take... That lying down. So we started the path of physical therapy and occupational therapy three times a week. Her physical therapist told us that she thought that she had cerebral palsy. So something in my gut said, that's not right either. And I went back to our primary care doctor. He finally relented and sent her for an MRI. And that's when we saw that she had less white matter than you would expect for a two-year-old that point, they told me there was a six-month wait to get in to see a neurologist. And I've been darn near feral when it comes to the dogged pursuit of of an answer. So I went on LinkedIn and started messaging every pediatric neurologist, or from Southern Illinois, in the Nashville (laughs) and St. Louis area saying, you know, who can see her? And I had her in within two days. Because when you're talking to the appointment setters, when you're talking to these people, You're just another voice on the phone. And what I really had to do is say, if this were your child, what would you do? If this were your child that was falling behind, if you're finding that your child might have a terminal diagnosis, because as soon as I saw the hypomyelation on her scan, you immediately go to Google. So I convinced a doctor to order tests, and it took eight weeks, but we got her diagnosis on July 28th. That is like, here we are two months later.
2: And like when you say about Halloween being fierce, but I honestly, as a mom, you sound like you're really the most fierce mom. To, to, to be able to take on that whole journey, right? And be persistent. But now digesting that diagnosis to what brought you to this conference, what thought process did you do to what your next steps would be after the diagnosis?
4: What I wanted to do post-diagnosis was curl up in a ball and go to bed and cry, but it is my daughter's life on the line. It is my daughter's future on the line, and how could I do that to her? She's two. I have to be her voice. I have to be her advocate, and I don't know this world. I'm not a subject matter expert, but darn it, I'm gonna be, and I'm on my way after two months. I'm learning every day, and Every spare moment, you know, that I have outside of work and raising three kids and taking care of the house and all of that is dedicated to this. Tell me about Harlow. Tell me what she's like and just— Give us an understanding of what does she like to do? She's effervescent. She's fierce. And she's so strong-minded. She's going to do everything in her own time. And, you know, she will just, she'll knock your socks off with the things she says. And she's my best friend. Like, she's my best friend. She loves being outside. You know, she just got this walker about a month ago. And she this is her first time, like, you know, other than crawling, like being able to independently get up and go. And so, you know, she's, chasing down, you know, everything she can. Like she loves animals. We went and we um we did a pottery painting with goats last Friday night. And she was chasing these little baby goats all over the pottery place. Like she's magnetic. She draws people in. Everybody loves her. She says hi to everybody. And you know, anytime she's she's so thank you so much. <laughs> you know, um she was meant to be in this world and on this earth. And I know that she is destined for so many wonderful things because you, you you meet a kid like her and you just feel that magnetism. And so it, it's up to me to make sure that no matter what barriers, no matter how many people say no, no matter what the cost, that she is able to forge forward in this world and in this life. And this is just going to be a speed bump. And I'm bound and determined to make that happen. And I tell her every night, Mama's going to move mountains for you. And uh, it's going to be one rock at a time, and that's why I'm here. So oh, also how
2: blessed she is. And I cannot thank you enough for sharing this story. It's so beautiful, and we definitely always wish the very best for Harlow, oh, but for you too, and, and she's, I have no doubt those mountains are going to get moved. You're going to do it.
4: I am. I don't have I don't have any other choice. Like, she, she was meant to be in this world. Thank you. Thank you so much for sharing this story. You're welcome. We so appreciate it. Yeah. Thank you for having me. Of course.
1: Thank you everyone for listening to this episode of Insightful Moments My Vibe and for supporting voices within the rare disease community. Thank you as well to everyone who shared their story on today's episode. Please visit our website at www.ptcinsightfulmoments.com for more stories and resources. If any of the stories resonated with you today, please let us know by leaving a review wherever you are listening or by sharing the show with a friend. I'm Emily Heinz and this has been Insightful Moments My Vibe from PTC Therapeutics.